God has called every single one of us to a life of heroic virtue. He's called every single one of us to a life of holiness, to a life of total love of God and of neighbor where there's nothing left. There's no remainder that we've held back from God and said, well, this is for me this week. I'm just going to hang on to this one kind of thing. No, that all of who we are is given over and God is pouring out all that we can handle into our lives. Deuteronomy 30, we're going to read the whole chapter. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you and call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore you, your fortunes and have mercy on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcasts, are in, the uttermore, are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, then you shall again obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, which you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rule, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for your servant Moses, for this body of people with whom we gather to worship and to praise, to set ourselves under your word. May we be formed and changed by it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably know by now 
Moses is preaching a sermon to who? To Israel, right? To the people of Israel. And where are they? It rhymes with the what? They're about to cross over the Jordan. And in particular, (coughs) excuse me, it's the plains of Moab, right? The plains of Moab. Um, That's that sort of flat spot on the ground right before you cross over the River Jordan, right before you come into the promised land that we know as Israel. He's told them in the book of Deuteronomy, he's told them kind of their origin story, how it is that they came up out of Israel and how they came up almost within two weeks. You know, they wandered in the wilderness 40 years, but it's not that long of a journey. It's like a two-week walk, even if you're walking with that many people. And so they got to the, to the promised land pretty quickly. But when they got there, they didn't want to go in because they wanted to go in on their terms and not God's terms. And so Moses has recounted this story for them of how they came out of slavery, how they were brought right up to the land of promise and yet refused to go in in the way that God was going to have them go in. He gave them the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words in chapter 5 to serve as this kind of foundation from which all righteousness, all seeking God could proceed. And then in chapters 12 to 26 of Deuteronomy, he, he walks them through the kind of the whole law again. It's, it's all of most of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Numbers and Leviticus kind of compressed down. And, and Deuteronomy, the name Deuteronomy actually means second law, right? So he's going over the law a second time. Only this time it's, it's kind of compressed and changed just a little bit because they're in a different situation now, right? They're no longer a people who are on the edge. You can back that up. I'll go ahead and click it from up here. Um, they're no longer a people who are on the kind of wandering out in the wilderness having to figure out how to live, but now they're having to figure out how do we bring this law into the land, right? So they're going from we are nomadic people who wander around and chase sheep in the desert to now we're people who have houses instead of tents, right? Who go to the same well over and over and over again, and there's all kind of drama and stuff that comes with that. There's all kinds of problems that show up with being a settled people that you don't have when you're nomadic, right? You get into that land and things change. And so Moses kind of has to walk through this law again. And I'm just going to, this is just my sort of summary. I stole Cody's slide. Uh, (laughs) It took me four or five months, but I finally stole his slide, okay? So, and this is just kind of my summary here um, of the law from 12 to 26, right? With the worship, and you can kind of see the Ten Commandments in there. With the worship and glory of the one true God front and center, we see the image of God in each person and reject any action that would damage or deny it. And by our love for one another, we proclaim that God is a God of eternal love and we seek the common good of the whole people of God, even if it costs me personally. Remember those commands, do not covet, right? That the good of God for my neighbor is more important to me than my own definition of my good. And in all things, we believe and live by the truth that faithfulness to God and trust in him are better than personal success at the expense of my neighbor. We feel, as we read chapter 30, we feel that kind of being right on the edge of this new day, this new land, this new place. But there's also hints of something else. Um, I know, I hope you picked it up a little bit. Um, but in this text, as, as, as Deuteronomy was memorized, and we know that Israel was wrestling with this over the course of their life, 
right, over hundreds of years. They're reading this, they're copying it down, they're memorizing it, they're telling the story to one another. And it seems if you read chapter 30, there's this sense that it's more than just about the plains of Moab, right? There's also kind of this sense, if you know the story of Israel, that hundreds of years later, all their unfaithfulness is going to catch up with them. All of the ways that they go after God's here and there, and they don't really want to trust the one Lord God. They, they want to kind of turn over to this God who seems pretty good right now, and this God throws good parties, so we'll go kind of hang out with him at this time of the year. And so they're sort of always chasing the thing that seems like it will work in the moment. And eventually, all of that unfaithfulness sort of breaks on them in the Babylonian captivity. And God allows all that are left of Israel, the two tribes that are left in the southern kingdom, to just be wiped out, and Jerusalem is knocked down to the ground, and the temple is destroyed, and all the precious, beautiful things from the temple are taken and carried off to Babylon to serve as a sign of the glory of the gods of some other land. If you want to read the story, go read Lamentations. Only the poorest of the poor and the least economically valuable are left in the land. And so Israel at that point, I mean, imagine that you're in Babylon, right? And again, this is, what, 700 years later than Moses' time, something like that. You're in Babylon, and you, everybody has been taken out. Everybody's been cut off, and you're starting to wrestle with this question, like, God seems to have rejected the way that we were living, and we should have known that he was going to do it because he told us that he was going to do it, but what now? What now? Now, has God rejected us forever? Has God rejected us so much that we just are going to continue to live in rejection? Should we go find some other God to take care of us because we don't have a God anymore? No, like, listen to the kind of faithfulness that Moses looks forward to here in Deuteronomy. If your outcasts, this is verse 4, if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, not even the uttermost parts of the earth, if they are in the uttermost parts of heaven, there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. I don't know if you've ever despaired like Israel and Babylon, sitting on the banks of the wrong river, <laughs> looking out over the banks of Babylon's river, not Jordan that you cross, but another river that's not your river, and you're surrounded by a city that's not your city, and temples that aren't your temple, and gods that aren't your God, and people who don't speak your language, and people who only want to use you for what they can use you for. I don't know if you've ever despaired like that. If you've ever been in a place where everyone around you is wrong and the place that you are is wrong and you know that you're suffering the punishment that you've brought on yourself. But that good news from God that He will gather you even from the uttermost parts of heaven. That He will pick you up from wherever you are and from whatever you've done and that there's no thing that you can do that can so utterly separate you from the Lord 
And some of us have that seed of despair that's kind of sown in us and we allow it to take root in some way or another where we go, I've just been so bad that God couldn't love me and I've done so much wrong that God couldn't actually take me back. And I've doubted in ways that I never should have doubted because I doubted that way. I've just kind of permanently brought the curses of God upon me and we live with that hanging over our head. And it's not true. It's not true. I wonder sometimes, and part of the reason I shudder to read texts like this, is that sometimes we believe the words about God's curses much more than we believe the words about His blessing. Much more than we believe the promises of His mercy and His grace. But you see here, God is eager to bring back everyone who has wandered, everyone who has strayed, no matter how deeply they've rejected him. So don't ever write yourself off. Don't ever write off your neighbor or your grandkids or your kids or that cousin or that friend from high school. I mean, whatever it is, do not write them off. Because the Lord wants to gather them even from the uttermost parts of heaven. That said, we still need to be clear about what turning toward God is. Moses says, in just like some of the most, for me, the most kind of arresting language in all of Scripture. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. You see, contrary to what a lot of people believe and especially what this culture wants us to believe in the way that it tries to shape us and form us, obedience is life. Obedience is life. Obedience is life because obedience is about aligning ourselves with God. It's about aligning ourselves, giving ourselves over to the God who gives all life. You know, it's not too hard for us to believe that, yes, all good things from God come from God. Yes, God is the one who gives life. He's the source of all of that. And yet, almost in the same breath, doubt whether God really has our best in mind for us. We've been taught to use our feelings and our short-term perceptions as the ultimate judge of what is good and bad. As a way of demonstrating this, I want to remind you of something. I don't want you to forget that I am the true chili king. Okay? A week and a half ago, we had trunk or treat. We had our chili cook-off. It was announced last week that I was the winner the victor, the champion of all chili. And although Rosalie wears the crown, we all know who the real victor is. <laughs> now here's the story, right? Many of you thought about, looked up recipes, prepared, 
I know at least one went and got specifically dried chilies so that he who shall remain nameless but is a member of the clergy uh, <laughs> and working the soundboard uh, reduced that dried actual chili down to a paste. He used a, a, a real sort of template of what a chili is supposed to, uh, uh, you know, what the dish is supposed to be, which is that it's supposed to be, what are the words? They're a little risque. Was it sensually hot? Was that the, <laughs> that's what a chili is supposed to be? It's supposed to have some heat, but it's, but bring flavor, right? Not like so much heat that it overwhelms you. I know because I was in the kitchen when Addie was cooking her chili and it was just like the smell was overwhelming. It was so good. So I know, even though I wasn't a taster, I know some of those chilies were excellent. But who won? My canned chili from Food Source. There was just the cheapest can I could get and I was just buying it so that everybody could eat. It wasn't about actually making it with skill. It was just about putting something out there so that we could fill people's bellies. But I said, let's enter this and just see what happens, right? <laughs> and I won by one vote. <laughs> now, why did I win? Why? It wasn't because it was the best. What? Yeah, <laughs> well, that may be. It, it wasn't because I was the best. In fact, it was probably because Food Source and whatever marketing company they bought or they hired has figured out what our taste buds like, right? And so it was probably the most mediocre chili, actually. It was the most right down the middle that didn't have too much flavor to offend anybody, but it also wasn't specific enough to do any real good in this world. <laughs> our desires, our tastes, our preferences have been studied and shaped by grocery stores as they develop food that hits some kind of sweet spot for us. It doesn't make it the best. It just means that we've been told our whole lives, this is what is good, right? This is what should taste kind of hearty and filling to you. And when it comes to chili, it's not that big of a deal. But when it comes to other more important things in our life, this is a very big deal. I've heard some people say that our pickers are broken. <laughs> Our obedience to God often feels like eating good chili. It isn't what we've been trained to want. It isn't the kind of life that we've been trained to look for or to celebrate. It's not the kind of life that's going to get lifted up in a Super Bowl halftime commercial. It's not the kind of life that you're going to see on a screen somewhere and that people are going to Celebrate and look at and go, that is the kind of life that we ought to live. This kind of life of quiet, sometimes subtle fortitude and strength and obedience in the midst of adversity. No, those kinds of lives don't get celebrated in our culture. They get ignored. And yet that's the kind of life that God is calling us to. See, Israel... And like Israel, we're surrounded with other options. Israel was surrounded with gods like Baal and Asherah and Molech and Dagon. And we are too. We're surrounded by gods of power, the gods of our own future. We're surrounded by the gods that 
want us to make family and friends look a certain way. We're surrounded by the God of Instagram and of Facebook, the God of having kids turn out a certain kind of way. Having our kids grow up right, not have meltdowns in the middle of the grocery store. We're surrounded by the God of happiness. And all of those things are in themselves fine. Right? It's fine to have a good and successful career. It's good to have a good family. It's good to have people and a community that loves each other. But what Deuteronomy has showed us is that all of those things need to be in their proper order. And that if they're not ordered properly, each one has a way of taking over our lives. And as it takes over our lives, it turns us into somebody and something that God does not want us to be. It turns us into something that we actually aren't. Instead, we hear Paul's words from Philippians 4, which I think Christina read. (laughs) I can't remember, (laughs) but just in case, I'll read them again. (laughs) Philippians 4, 10 to 13. (laughs) He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Right? I have learned the secret of being content, of real hope, of real joy, of real peace. That's what Paul's talking about. And that's the kind of life that we've been called to live. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, I can do all things? We've all heard that verse. We've all seen it. We've worn t-shirts that have it pasted all over the place. But what does he mean, I can do all things? Paul doesn't mean that he can nail that job interview. Right? And he doesn't mean... That because he knows Christ, he can date the prettiest girl in school or run a four-minute mile or bench press 400 pounds. Right? I can do all things doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. I can do all things means I can do all things in Christ. In particular, I can bear even the cross. I can bear even the cross. Because Christ is in and with me, strengthening me and giving me power and hope to live the kind of life that I would have thought was impossible on my own. The reason I wanted to preach through Deuteronomy because it's a book, it's text, in which Moses turns to his people who he has loved and suffered with, who he's cared for, poured himself out for. And he says, hey, if you want to continue to live God's life, this is the way you need to live. He turns to them, And he says, if you want to really follow this God who has saved you from slavery, this is how you ought to live. He says, you, even you who are in the pews every week, even you who volunteer every Wednesday, 
and Tuesday and Wednesday morning and Friday night and Saturday and whenever we, even you who think I'm so much a part of this church that this church would fall apart if I didn't show up some week. Even you, God still wants to deepen his love for you. He still wants to deepen your love for him. He is looking for even a deeper evangelization and conversion in your own heart. And Moses says, I know we've gone through the wilderness and I know we're about to come into the promised land, but we're not just here to celebrate it. I want to get the way of God so deeply into you. I want to get the life of God so deeply into you that you have no other way. And that you hunger and you yearn for more of God. That you're not satisfied with what brought you through the wilderness, but you desire to be in His presence in the promised land. And sometimes we can have this kind of just enough mentality. That I'm just going to serve God enough and I'm just going to love God enough and I'm just going to be saved enough so I can kind of move up one step or maybe I can, just so I can kind of get into heaven and all the while God is saying, I want to pour heaven out onto your life now. I, I want to pour heaven out onto this earth even now in you, in your life. But we just want enough. God has called every single one of us to a life of heroic virtue. He's called every single one of us to a life of holiness, to a life of total love of God and of neighbor where there's nothing left. There's no remainder that we've held back from God and said, well, this is for me this week. I'm just going to hang on to this one kind of thing. No, that all of who we are is given over. And God is pouring out all that we can handle into our lives. Like Israel, we are not called to lie or cheat and steal because it seems best in the moment. We are called to the common good of one another and of our world. We're called to direct all hearts and minds toward God. Even if that means sacrificing our own store-bought, canned spiritual life because we hunger for the unbelievable depths that God has in store for us. There's a story um, about Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, the artist, um, who, that's him. You know, he's the guy who did the Sistine Chapel, painted the Sistine Chapel, and did the big sculpture of David and all of those. Well. Towards the end of his career, he's in his workshop, and he's been tasked with carving this, this sculpture. And a boy walks into his workshop and sees this massive block of raw marble. I mean, you wouldn't even, you, you, you would just kind of, your mind would boggle to think how big these pieces of rock are, right? Because the, the sculptures themselves are 10, 20 feet. I mean, they're huge. So imagine how big the marble is that it's carved out of. He's got this huge block of raw marble that other artists have tried to work with and they haven't been able to. And the boy says, um, you know, seeing, seeing the marble just kind of shakes his head. Months later, he comes back. And there is the almost finished sculpture of Moses. Um, some have called it Michelangelo's kind of greatest work as a sculptor. Um, here's a couple other angles. 
You can see he's seated. He's got the law in his right hand. Um, and he looks out. There's one more there. That one's got that dramatic light on it. <laughs> and here, here's Moses, who we know is over 100 years old, but he's still got, he's still got the guns of a shepherd from Sinai, you know. <laughs> and the boy turns to him, he says, you know, Michelangelo, how, how did you know that Moses was inside that piece of marble? And Michelangelo's response is essentially to say that he did not chip Michelangelo, or he did not chip Moses into the rock, but rather he freed him from it. Right? Now here's the image. You're Moses. <laughs> this church is Moses. Your life and your holiness is a raw piece of marble. It's a raw block of stone. And God is the master artist who wants to chip it away, who wants to free you from all of the stuff that is built up around you that the world puts on us, that our sin puts on us, that our choices put on us. All those kinds of accretions of sin and, and fear and worry that keep us locked inside that block of stone. And here is God, one strike at a time, trying to chip away at it trying to free you to be the work of art that you were created to be, to be the saint, to be the holy person that you were created to be, to make us the church that we were created to be. A church that people look at and immediately their minds and their hearts turn to God, not because of the glory of our building, but because of the holiness of our hearts and lives. Because of the depth of sacrifice that we have for one another and for the world around us. Because of the depth of love that we have for the Word, that we have for God, that we have for our neighbors. That's the kind of life Deuteronomy is talking about. And God will go anywhere He can go to be able to gather us together so that we can be that kind of people. But sometimes it's going to hurt. <laughs> sometimes that chipping away is not pleasant. And the way that God chips those things away is to actually wound us. At the time, it feels like a wound. But the truth is, is that he's freeing us if we'll let him do it. God is chipping away everything that is not of him. And I know the hammer doesn't always feel good but it makes us into the kind of people that God wants us to be. It makes us into the best we can be. I know that the world doesn't always recognize it, that we don't always get awards and honors and blue ribbons for our faithfulness to Christ. But God sees it, and God knows your heart. And he knows those secret times and those quiet places where you turn yourself toward him despite your weakness. He knows and he sees when you choose to love him instead of loving yourself. He knows and he sees when you silently and without telling anybody lift up your neighbor or your spouse or your child or your friend in prayer. And each one of those moments 
is God hammering, chipping, polishing you into the work of art that he wants you to be. It's God strengthening you to take up your cross and follow him. We're going to sing uh, Reckless Love again. and um, I want you to know that the altars are open this morning. If you need to come pray, if there's something in your life that there's some particular sticky piece of marble <laughs> that you need God to chip away, um, I want you to know that I, if you come over here, I'll leave you alone. Right? If you come pray on this side or sit in those chairs, I'll leave you alone. But if you come on this side, I'd love to come pray with you and just share some of that burden because we can't do this life alone, right? Um, so Josh, would you come forward and, and play for us right before we go to communion this morning? As they come forward, let's pray. Lord God, um, I thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I thank you even for the word that is sometimes hard, that there is no life outside of you, and that everything that looks like life is a deception. So Lord, help us to see and to know the gift that you have given us in your church, the gift that you have given us in your word. And may we be bold, Lord, to choose life this morning, to choose life and good and to leave behind all that is death and evil, we pray in Christ's name.